0: Our next speaker is Dr. Scott Fretzen. Dr. Fretzen grew up on the north side of Chicago and majored in philosophy in the College of Washington University of St. Louis. For medical school and his internship, he returned to Chicago at the University of Chicago. There he matched training in dermatology at Indiana University and during his dermatology residency, developed a special interest in the management of sexually transmitted diseases. Currently, he staffs the Marion County SDE Clinic once a week. Dr. Fretzen joined Ken Dawes in 1997. Their private practice is mostly general dermatology and dermatologic surgery. In 2002, he opened the Dawes Fretzen Clinical Research Group and since participated in numerous clinical studies involving medications for skin diseases such as psoriasis, atopic dermatitis, skin cancer, and acne. He has also investigated new agents for non-dermatological conditions such as diabetes. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Fretzen.
1: Thanks, Travis, thank you. Good morning, thank you for coming. Uh, really, of, of all the introductions I've ever had, that was by far the most recent, thank you. Um, when I was a resident 15 years ago, there was a sort of a, a moonlighting job that opened up, uh, at the STD clinic, and so I sort of became involved in treating sexually transmitted diseases. And really the, the, uh, the, the, the question I get all the time when I teach students and residents is, why am I doing this? Why is a dermatologist doing this? And for those people that, uh, don't know, the, the field of dermatology evolved from syphilis, right? There was no dermatology. It was always general medicine, and then it became, dermatology and syphilology or dermatology and venereology and so that's how dermatologists do this. Um, before I go into more of the details it is a this is a talk for mature adults this is not for kids there's lots of uh, pictures uh, things that you may want to close your eyes I have no conflicts of interest here um, so this is just one of the many pictures you'll see during the upcoming talk it's it's supposed to be uh, informative, but it's going to be a little bit, you know, it's going to be a little bit lighthearted, too, simply because it's a, it's a subject which makes people laugh, um, but it's a very serious subject. In in this STD clinic, the first question when people sign in, the, the clinic that I run, um, is why are you here today? And I have put five of the best answers I've got from that in this slide here, and they are, they're real responses, they're humorous, they're grown up, but you'll see that this is the real world of sexually transmitted diseases. Um, William Osler, obviously most people have heard of him as one of the greatest physicians. This is really, again, where dermatology came from, from the field, from syphilis. And if you try to name an STD without a dermatological manifestation, it's actually pretty hard. Chlamydia urethritis is really just a urethritis, so maybe that's the best we're going to get. But, um, even that, very often you'll get an irritant dermatitis from the, from the discharge. While you're here today, I went into a storm without a raincoat. That's all it says in the form, and then I have to ask them all the questions about what that means. Why is it important to know STDs? Of the top ten reported, five are STDs. So infections are obviously very common, but STDs are extremely common. This is the study that made the news about six, eight months ago, the CDC 2008 study. Almost a quarter of U.S. women, more than a quarter of U.S. women, are infected with at least one of the most common uh, STDs, and uh, 48% of African-American women are infected. You can see these numbers are, are huge. I mean, if you look around at how many people in this room, 250 people, you know, 40 people here are infected with one of these things, of the women. So just be aware of that. Look at your neighbor with a different smile. Um, you never know what you're going to get. Herpes, of course, 20% of adults have positive blood serology for herpes too, not just inner city, outer city, suburbs, well-to-do suburbs. 20% is across the board. HPV, of course, is 80%. Uh, we see people with H- HPV all the time. And remember, most people that have HPV don't actually have the bumps. They just carry the virus. So that's, that's not one of the talks. I, I don't have a very many HPV slides, but we'll go through a little bit. Again, why it's important, what are the, what, what's so important about treating STDs, uh, besides the fact that they're pretty gross looking, um, you can get PID and chronic pelvic pain, infertility. These are real uh, real problems long-term. Of course, cervical cancer with HPV, so it is, again, important. And the, we, the Gardasil vaccine, of course, is out, and I recommend everyone get the Gardasil vaccine, every female at this point. It'll eventually be males as well, but it's really a great, uh, a great step in treating HPV. Perinatal transmission of all these diseases is a problem. Uh, it's still a problem in third world countries, so it is important to get these treated early. And a lot of what we see in our clinic are people that went to their OB and they were screened and asymptomatically were sent over to us. HIV of course is uh, more involved with STDs than I think some people give a credit for because the number one risk factor for HIV transmission is having an ulcer or a sore in the genitals. And so if you have any other cause for a sore and you get exposure, you're more likely to get HIV. It increases the transmission greatly. Uh, That's a lot of the, uh, Indiana University has a big program in uh, Africa where they're looking at chancroid, trying to reduce chancroid by treating that to prevent HIV. The biggest problem I'm seeing now in the clinic over the 12, 13 years I've worked there is people don't care that much about HIV anymore. It's back to, when I started, people hated herpes. Then it was all HIV, now it's it's herpes again. Because they think, oh, I've seen Magic Johnson for 16 years, he's had no problem, HIV, just take some pills and you're better, so you'll see a lot more of that cavalier attitude about HIV, which of course is unfortunate. The CDC does require you to report syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, HIV. Uh, the hardest thing with it is if you go to the ER sometimes and you're diagnosed, very often the ER, the paperwork doesn't get done. Or if you come to the dermatologist, I've had some people with syphilis in my office. I don't know how to report them to the CDC. So I have to instruct people and I have to tell people, other physicians or providers, please get these patients to a reportable place. And it's not so easy. So I think a lot of the report, a lot of the reports, a lot of my slides are right from the CDC are somewhat skewed by the fact that not everybody gets reported. This goes over other things. You have to do screen patients for other STDs. It's very important. If someone comes in with a complaint of new onset herpes, you test them for everything else. In our clinic, to walk in the door is $10. With that $10, you get testing for every STD uh, and treatment as well. are you here today, my husband can't keep his dick in his pants. That's what they wrote on the screen. So it, it's just, people just write this and... You know? What's the history we take at our clinic? Basic chief complaint, symptoms. We always ask about partner's symptoms, although we can't really ask if the partner's there, but sometimes they are. How many partners in the last year? How many partners in the last two months? The gender of the partners, uh, very very specific questions about what kind of sex they're having. Uh, the last time you had sex, did you use a condom? Uh, condom use is, the, this, the discussion I have is such a disjointer so often with patients who say, do you, use, do you want your girlfriend to get pregnant? No, of course not. Are you using condoms? No. Do you understand it? And very often they'll say, I sort of get it, but I just don't want to use condoms. And so the, a lot of the education, as much as we try, is not out there. And then sex with a risky partner. We have a whole form. where we ask, sex with someone you met over the internet, sex with someone you, uh, while using ecstasy, sex with someone while using crack cocaine. So there's a whole field of that. Uh, look in their mouths, look, look at their palms and soles for syphilis. I'll show you a picture of that. Uh, pelvic exam, I never thought when I finished my dermatology training, I'd ever have to pull a speculum out again, but I do. Um, look for men, For always check for circumcision. There's a, clearly a much higher incidence of STDs in uncircumcised men, uh, and a higher incidence of penile cancer in uncircumcised men. The labs, depends where you are, of course, but basically, these are the labs that we do, and every patient that walks in the door, whether they want them or not, if they if they come in and they say they have a bump on their penis or scabies or whatever else, we still we still screen for syphilis. We still check for the whole um, for gonorrhea, chlamydia. We'll do a wet mount. We do all these tests just to make sure everything else is clear. And it's amazing how many times they come in for what they think is trichomonas. and they do have trichomonas, but they also have chlamydia. Uh, we do a dark field for syphilis if we can. Uh, and again, for you know for men, we will do oral and anal. Swabs as well. Why are you here today? You can all read this. You can't really make this stuff up. Let's talk about syphilis. Syphilis is—I've been doing syphilis treatment now for 15 years, and it's still too complicated for me to know how to treat it. We have a whole floor of people that cause called—they're called disease intervention people—and this is what they do. So, I don't know the the, the, uh, the, the sort of the step letter approach for treating it. How long you've had it? The different—it's very complicated. But let's look over some graphs from the CDC uh, website. Uh, and you can see that from 1970 to 2004, syphilis has uh, actually finally started to really go down, although it's starting to peak up a little bit. And when you look at the, the peak in the 80s and 90s, that was sort of corresponding with a nationwide peak of, uh, of syphilis going along with uh, crack cocaine getting much more commonly used. So crack cocaine, prostitution, syphilis. That's where that spike came from. Um, By ethnicity, if you look down, uh, it's just a higher incidence in blacks than in other races. Again, a site from the CDC uh, across national lines. Male to female ratio. This is an interesting slide. It took me a little bit to figure out why is the male to female ratio changing over time? And it's simply because they're seeing a lot more uh, risky behavior in gay men. You'll see as I go through the slides, and you guys may know this or not, but it's not politically correct anymore to say gay men. It's MSMs. The people know that abbreviation, MSM, which means males who have sex with males. As it turns out, the government doesn't want people to be called gay anymore because a lot of men who have sex with men do not consider themselves gay. They're married, and they happen to have sex with men. So they're males who have sex with males, or men who have sex with men. So that's it sort of skews some of the data. I think it's a a politically correct way of trying to Categorize this Okay, I have only one slide from where I'm from. I'm from from Marion County uh, I put this in simply to show you that when I was there uh, in in I started in 1995 But you can see in 1999 we were number one in the country per capita for incidence of syphilis It had nothing to do with me. It's just where I happened to be and it was very interesting when you uh, We have a, one of those like typhoid Mary charts. We found the name of the first person who was a prostitute using crack cocaine, and we started doing one of those diagrams where you go out like this, and we unfolded it and took up this whole stage. where That one person started this whole stage was filled with names of syphilis over the last five years. It's pretty impressive, but it works just like any other infectious disease. Um, and right now, if you go over to 2007, 2008, it's starting to bump up a little bit again because of uh, uh, gay men. So that's going to come back down again, hopefully. But our, our, we are very uh, happy with people in our county for... Being successful in sort of eradicating the outbreak we had, syphilis is caused by and pallidum. There's three stages: primary, secondary, and tertiary. Uh, and the, really, the most complicated thing about syphilis is making the initial diagnosis. It doesn't—it sounds like it will be pretty easy, but it can be very—it can be very complicated because so many ulcers can look similar. We also break it into latent infections, both early and late. Uh, the treatment's based on on uh, this definition. So for people that People that, if you can't place them, you don't know when they were infected, we call it syphilis of unknown duration and you treat them longer term. And unfortunately, a lot of people don't know when they were infected because they've, they've been with a lot of partners in the last year. You're not really considered infectious when you're in latent stages either. This is a dark field. You can see the dark, the spirochetes here and here. These are pretty classic. Dark field is not done by anyone in Indiana except for us. I'm sure other states all have occasional health boards that do it. It's still a great test, but in the, in the 15 years I've been there, I've seen two positives because it's very difficult to get a good positive. But basically, you take the ulcer, you put some saline on a slide, you, you push pretty hard, and you just look under a dark-filled microscope, and sometimes you'll see these things spinning around. Uh, it's actually very interesting. If you, do it from, if you do it from a mouth, a normal mouth of anybody in this room, you'll see the same spirochetes. So you can't tell the syphilis spirochetes from normal spirochetes that live in someone's mouth. I'm hoping it's not syphilis in your mouth. <laughs> um, Syphilis, the incubation period, is about three weeks. Uh, the, the main take-home from this slide is that it always says painless ulcer. I'll show you some pictures, and you guys can look at the pictures. If you think it looks painless, you're probably right. It looks it, it's probably wrong. It's not painless. I mean, I don't know. They always say painless, and that's the classic definition of a, a, a shanker. But uh, the people that I see that have these, they usually hurt. I guess, versus regular skin and maybe versus herpes is how you have to define it. And the shanker can be anywhere on the skin. And the lesion heals without any treatment. And that's the hard thing about making this diagnosis. People come in so often with secondary or tertiary or latent or an incidental RPR that's positive. That's why it's so hard because the shanker just goes away or secondary syphilis rash just goes away. Here's a typical ulcer. I don't think I have to show you the laser pointer. Those. Those are not my hands, by the way. Um, but you can see, does that look painless to anybody here? Does anyone think that being on your genitalia is going to be painless? No, and it, it hurts. But it's not as bad as herpes, so it's a relative, relative, uh, relative uh, pain, I guess. Same same idea on a woman. You can see the ulcer is here, well demarcated. It's a nice rolled border on the ulcer here. When you get to secondary syphilis, which is this, this, what you normally see in a dermatologist's office, that's what you're going to see is the person who has the rash. Um, and even after I've been doing this for 10 years, I had someone about a year ago came to my office who had a, what I thought was pityriasis rosea, and it turned out to be syphilis. So, even though I've seen lots of cases of syphilis, I still miss the diagnosis because it can look like anything. It can be papular, it can be, it can be classic, it can be not classic. Just always it's, it's on every. You, you can never be wrong. If someone asks you for a differential diagnosis and you put syphilis in there, you're pretty much always going to have it. Very often, they'll have flu-like symptoms. They will have lymphadenopathy. Uh, Condylomalata, I have a picture of those. Uh, the moth-eaten alopecia is the classic boards question. Um, we'll see. So this is sort of the classic uh, look. I mean, you can't look at this and not think of pityriasis rosea or an annular lichen planus or uh, mild psoriasis. But this is a hyperpigmented macu- uh, macula with a slight amount of scale. And then this is classic too. Palms and soles. Always look in the palms and soles because they're, they're pretty distinctive. What else could this be? It's going to be erythema multiforme, maybe. Could it could be a sort of a fixed drug eruption. Atypical uh, measles. There's, there's several different things it could be. Uh, Rocky Mountain spotted fever. But generally, this is going to be syphilis uh, in the modern world. lata. This is another, gr- uh, you know, grown-up picture. Um, but. They look just like regular condyloma, the warts, but they have a little bit more of a fluffiness to them. That's sort of a nice term to put with it, I guess. (laughs) Uh, And then you can get get them on the face as well, but they're the same, you look closely. They're nice little annular, hyperpigmented patches and papules. Tertiary syphilis, you're only gonna pretty much see on blood tests or very rarely in a hospital with someone who has a very end-stage disease. Sometimes with HIV, if they find they weren't treated um, the gummas uh, and skin, bones, oral cavity, rest it could be pretty much everywhere. Uh, and these are generally very difficult to treat. So when someone actually develops tertiary syphilis, they don't respond as well to antibiotics as um, other diseases, as is earlier syphilis as well. Latent syphilis, it's basically asymptomatic infection, and it's usually found on an RPR just because they're screening them. Many individuals may not recognize signs of it, and they often have st- no signs. People with a rash. I never had a sore. I don't know what I don't know what you're talking about. And again, the definition is early latent is within one year of infection. Late latent is more than one year, and the treatment's different based on when they were infected. Again, we talked a little bit about the dark field microscopy, but using the blood test is the main way of diagnosing syphilis. We can do an RPR in, a, in our clinic in about eight minutes, so people don't leave; they wait till we have the results. Because you don't want them, to, especially if you're suspicious. Um, there's the non-specific tests and the specific tests, um, and it's it's important it's important that you always double check these tests because they're not great all the time. And you do have to do a you have to do a, a quantitative RPR because that's how you follow the results of the person's progress to the treatment. So if someone comes in the RPR is, you know, one to three sixty, you want to have a fourfold dilution at two weeks later or four weeks later to make sure that it's resolving and responding. Because every once in a while, especially with HIV, you won't get a response the way you want to. This, I think, is a fairly important slide. If you look at the secondary line, that's the line where you get good results in your test. 99 or 100% sensitivity is really what you want. The problem here is in primary syphilis. So someone comes in and they have a, you look at this ulcer, this is definitely syphilis. I don't know what else it could be. And you get a negative RPR while you wait. That's because this test is not perfect and because often it takes several weeks for the test to become positive. So someone has a sore and they come in, I know it's syphilis, the choices are, okay, don't have sex for the next two weeks, come back in and we'll retest you. The choice is to treat them empirically. We used to do the the former and then we realized that people weren't listening to us and they were having sex and they were spreading syphilis. So now pretty much, if we're suspicious, especially in a high risk population with HIV or or, uh, gay men, then we will do, just to give them a shot right then and make sure the FDA is sent. Because the shot will ruin the RPR, but it will keep the, the FTA, the permanent ones, will still stay positive. Treatment is still penicillin. Uh, for those of you that haven't seen what a, a shot of benzathine penicillin looks like, it comes in an 18 gauge, one and a half inch needle, and it's thick like jelly. And so for, in order to put this in someone's behind area, you have to really push your effort. It's very hard and it really hurts. Um, some of the nurses where I work will often break it into two doses, but I sort of figure they got syphilis, they get a shot. So I give them the shot. Usually, you know, and the, and the people that need the shots three times, one week at a time, so anything later than early, latent syphilis, they get a shot, a week later a shot, a week later a shot. There's a, it's surprising, they do come back. And if they don't come back, we drive out to the field, the people that do these, the, and bring them back to us. They need to get their three shots. Neurosyphilis still requires IV treatment. People that are allergic to to, uh, to penicillin, if if they really need penicillin, we will desensitize them. We'll work with an allergist, and we'll give them penicillin until they can get it. Or if it's primary secondary doxycycline, actually works fine. It's an issue of compliance with doxycycline. So it's 14 days of doxycycline it has a has a very nice uh, response rate. Why are you here today? You can read this one yourselves. Um, it's a it's a long long paragraph. So the the question is, when you read this, you know what's Obviously, the guy is blaming the girls, but what's the common denominator? It's obviously the guy in this case. So, uh, but he doesn't—he doesn't see that that way. I right, switch to gonorrhea. This is a typical, typical discharge of gonorrhea, yellowish green. Uh, sort of a funny anecdote about myself. About six, eight weeks ago, I just had a patient. He had just uh, copious amounts of discharge, and I sat down and I said, "I want to put a Q-tip in the end of your penis," and he sort of took his penis out and the fluid flew all over my pants. And and he says, you know, sorry, doc. And I said, yeah, I'm sorry, too. So the question you guys can do some research on is, I don't know how to get someone else's gonorrhea off pants. Dry cleaning or washing, I couldn't figure it out. So I told my wife and she did some research. But it's just, just, just the, the, fun of, the fun of working at an STD clinic. Gonorrhea is caused by Neisseria. Uh, a lot of adolescents and adults, it's often asymptomatic. You'll see that. It's often symptomatic or asymptomatic. Um, women are more often asymptomatic than men are most symptomatic. Um, again, a CDC slide showing the incidence of gonorrhea coming down, which is where we want it. It's sort of leveled off, but it's, it's, you can see the bottom checkered board is where, they, where the CDC wants it to be, and they're not quite there yet. And My guess is as you come back in 1,000 years, it'll still be above that line. This is a good slide showing that men, if you look at the way this is presented, the red side is women, the yellow side is men, and the age is in the middle. It's a, men generally have sex with younger women, that's why you see the incidence is higher at men of a little bit of a higher age than women. This is a, a national slide. Um, I just think it's a nice slide to look at to see where gonorrhea is. You can all look at which state you're in and decide, you know, is your house there, is one of your neighbors there? Uh, the red, of course, is the worst, and then the blue ones have very, 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 so few incidents they don't make the cut. So hopefully you live in a blue state, not a red state. I don't think the people have any political motivations to choosing blue and red here. I think it just, uh, just turned out that way. Most people have a local infection in the urethra. Men will have epididymitis, which can be pretty, pretty painful, uh, and women will have, can get PID. Disseminated infection is, is, this is again, what I asked you at the beginning, what kind of derm manifestations. If, if you get gonorrhea in the skin, you will get disseminated infection and it can look uh, in the skin. And also as you can imagine that green discharge can lead to an irritant dermatitis, which you have to treat as well. And actually sometimes people will come to the, to the clinic because they have a rash on their penis and it's itching and they can't figure out why. And then you say, well, what's that green stuff coming out? Oh, I've had that for a long time. It's the rash that bothers me. This is a typical picture for disseminated gonorrhea. Very tender, little purple papules, usually in the distal extremities. I've only seen it twice. Uh, And usually they'll have joint symptoms, and they can have other systemic symptoms, uh, fevers, etc. But it is on the skin, obviously. In men, urethritis is by far the most common presentation. It takes a couple days. uh, So that usually, it's it's fast enough that usually they don't have time to find another partner. But they sometimes do. Often they'll have dysuria. Um, Occasionally they're asymptomatic. Uh, again, they can have epididymitis. Another picture of gonococcal arthritis And again, that's not my hand. That's uh, the patient's hand. And this is called milking the urethra to get fluid out of it. We have to do that sometimes because you can get a quick test. And what I tell patients, what I tell patients they have a choice of either doing this or letting me put a Q-tip in further. Uh, and most of the time, they choose to do this because the Q-tip is not very fun. In women, it's a, the cervix is the primary site of, an, of infection. Vaginal discharge is urea, uterine bleeding. Uh, and again, many women are asymptomatic. Uh, PID can occur in 10 to 20% of women. Again, cervical motion tenderness, you, we look for this and usually it's pretty, pretty noticeable. It's usually jump off the table, just push on your belly type of pain. This is a picture of a cervix with the green discharge coming out of the center of it. So the cervix itself, Actually, it looks relatively healthy, but the discharge is what's not healthy. We use a gram stain to diagnose it. It's still relatively easy in men. Uh, Women, unfortunately, there are lots of normal pathogens or normal bacteria, which can confuse the symptoms, but in, uh, can confuse the diagnosis. But in men, it's very easy to make the diagnosis. I have a picture of that. DNA probe tests have become much more uh, prevalent, much easier to get. And we're doing more and more of that now in my clinic. Uh, So you take, uh, they pee in a cup, you give the people the choice. You want me to put a Q-tip in your penis or you want to pee in a cup? And 90% choose the, the pee in a cup. And they do a DNA screen and it works real well. The PCR testing. This is a picture. This is a little, the little dots of the gram-negative diplococca you see with gonorrhea. This is from a male discharge. All they do is swab it and do a quick gram stain while you wait. Uh, and nothing else causes that. So this is a pretty much you know, 95% sensitive. This is what it is. Gonorrhea, like syphilis, still generally responds to standard therapy. Suprax, or cefixime, is the standard dose. One time pill, you just take it and it works. And it works in pretty much everybody. A Couple years back, the company stopped making uh, cefixime and there was a few, few, about two years we couldn't get it and we were giving everyone either Cipro or a shot of ceftriaxone, Uh, but now they make it again so you can get cefixime. It's tolerated better, there's less allergies, it's not a shot and you can watch the person take the dose. Always treat chlamydia when you treat gonorrhea pretty much always it's easy enough and it they seem to co- co- correlate very often People that have chlamydia don't necessarily have gonorrhea, but who have gonorrhea very often will have chlamydia simply based on the incidence of chlamydia is so uh, so high. the most recent issue with the with the CDC has been resistance to cipro uh, it's very high in Asia, and we're seeing it more and more in California and Hawaii, and even in Indianapolis, where everything comes last, around the country, sort of works its way there. Um, we're seeing it more and more. Uh, again, almost always in uh, gay men, we're seeing it more and more. But Cipro is now not considered a treatment of choice, even if they're allergic to penicillin. We'd, we'd rather use the cephalosporin than Cipro. There's another CDC slide showing in the red resistant cases of gonorrhea to Cipro. This is across the country and you can see over the years it's just become much, much more prevalent. So just another one more slide that people can use to show that there is changes in bacteria that become responsive to different uh, antibiotics. Um, Luckily, there's been no resistance to the cephalosporins, yes. Again, in the red is the, the men who have sex with men. Much higher incidence than heterosexual men. So I still have some non-gay men who I will give Cipro to, simply because they can't take cephalosporins and they can't take penicillin. Um, and we will just have to retest them. And that's the only time I retest people, is if they if I give them Cipro. And most of the time, it's not a problem. But you can see, again, just the dramatic increase. Why are you here today? Okay, it's, it's not, it's sort of, it's just... You know, it's interesting when people come in and say, I know something's wrong, but something doesn't taste right. Okay. Chlamydia, a little bit of a different discharge. Uh, I, and um, you can see it's a clear discharge. There's a uh, One of the reasons I got involved in STDs was because of a professor at IU who said there's never such a thing as a dermatology lecture without a 12-foot penis on the board. So there you go. CDC recommends, if you look at the one in italics there, this is a new recommendation. Women with chlamydia infections should be retested three to four months after treatment. This is new. We, used to, we just assumed it worked. The other thing that's really different about chlamydia than the other ones we're talking about is that there has got to be screening in any sexually active woman under the age of 25. Just in a regular OB appointment, it's recommended to get screening. Every pregnancy gets screening, and I would say of all the men I see for chlamydia, maybe 15% are because my girlfriend, my partner, she's pregnant, and she had chlamydia, so I came in to get get treated. We don't even have to screen them. We do, but they're, they're always being treated. Once you're older than 25, the CDC is assuming you're maybe being monogamous, which is a better assumption than when you're 18. <laughs> it's still not a good assumption. Uh, there's no formal recommendations for the men. Uh, they just get treated, and that's why you'll see when the... When the Epidemiology slides—you'll see that women have a much higher incidence than men. I think it's basically a screening bias. This is caused by chlamydia trachomatis. Women are frequently asymptomatic again, um, and women are at risk for severe complications. Ectopic pregnancy has been associated with chlamydia a fair amount. Looking at the incidence, uh, the red is women and the yellow is men. Again, I think the—I don't think incidence is that much higher. It's not uh, like the opposite. It's not women who have sex with women. I think it's just that. Women are being screened much more frequently, so they get recorded much more frequently. Men obviously carry it, and they just don't have the right the data here. Again, looking at the incidence, you see it's much higher in women, and the age group for women is much higher in 15- to 19-year-old girls. Uh, men, is a little bit higher in 20-year-olds. Again, I think it's that same older men, younger women scenario. Men will have the clear discharge, like I showed you the picture of it. Uh, it's sometimes purulent, it can, it can look like gonorrhea and you'll do the grams thing. you're surprised and it's not, it's just it's chlamydia. Men will often have dysuria, they're not sure what it is. I think it's a UTI, because everyone's been on the internet of course and they think they have a urinary tract infection or they'll say they have a, a zipper burn. You know, I got my penis caught in my zipper and I got a discharge from it somehow. Um, all right, That's, we see that a lot actually, we call it zipper burn. In, in uh, women, cervix is the primary site of infection. Vaginal discharge is urine, abnormal uterine bleeding. And again, 85% of women are asymptomatic. So we, we screen everybody for this. We do more urine tests now with DNA probes. PID occurs in 20 to 40% of women with chlamydia, and it may present with abdominal pain, abnormal bleeding. So women that have nonspecific OB complaints we, the OBs know this in general. I still say get, get tested for STDs. And I don't, I've I, been doing this long enough now, I don't trust anybody. So I just tell everybody get checked out and you know, pee in this cup. It's an easy test to do. NGU is what the most common diagnosis I make in men who have chlamydia, which stands for non gonococcal urethritis. And it's basically you do that same gram stain. You don't see the intracellular gonococci, but you do see a lot of white cells. Normally, you should have a sterile urethral in men. Um, but if you, see high, if you see white cells, that means something's going on. And even though you can't say it's definitely chlamydia, it's almost always chlamydia. Uh, so you treat them for chlamydia, and it works. For the, They call it NGU, but we, we treat it for chlamydia. P, uh, PCR is, is becoming more, more available and much more specific and sensitive. Uh, most of these people have symptoms, though. And it's pretty easy to treat them. Zithromax is still a is, is the main treatment, because, again, you can watch them take it. Uh, although I will tell you in my clinic, Zithromax, as you know, is not cheap. Even generic is not cheap. Doxycycline is less than three cents a pill. So we still, if I talk to a person and I feel like he really doesn't want to get this again, he will, I'll give him doxycycline because it saves the taxpayers money, and that's still the standard protocol where I work. Doxycycline for seven days, no sex for seven days, um, and if they miss any doses, come back in and get retested or retreated. It also responds to erythromycin, but anybody here knows no one's going to take erythromycin QID for seven days because you're going to throw up, and you're going to take it for one dose. Why are you here today? Sex bumps in the pubic area. My boyfriend told me a lot of sex would make them go away. He offered to help me with this cure. So again, you can't make this up. Okay, let's, let's talk about herpes, and this is a, not a boy that I know, but it's I, I like this slide because it shows you that Herpes is a, is a steep cliff. And once you start on it, it it's the, the, the bane of the patients that I have to deal with are the ones that come in that are sure they have herpes. These are the people that are actually usually not my typical patients. These are the ones that are businessmen or businesswomen. They're traveling and they have a one time affair and they really regret it and they're so nervous they don't want to tell their spouse, I'm sure I have herpes. And there's nothing there, but they're sure they have herpes. It's a tough diagnosis. It's incurable, uh, it, it's caused by one or two, and up to 30% of initial infections is caused by one, but recurrences are less common. So every once in a while, I, you have people that have, you can test them for one or two, and based on what you find, you can sort of reassure them. You have HSV-1 down there, so you're less likely to have recurrences, which helps a little bit. Um, 20% of adults in the U.S. have been infected with herpes-2, uh, most of them are not diagnosed. This is, this, is a, this, is a, this is actually a pretty big survey done a few years back where they just went through all the... So not universities. They were more like private practice clinics both in the suburbs and the city in several different major cities across the, uh, the country and found that 20% of people in random blood tests were positive for HSV-2. There may even be a possible new recommendation with the next CDC guideline. If someone has a positive HSV-2 blood test to treat him prophylactically with one of the antivirals. I'm not sure I like that recommendation, but it may be coming down the pipe. Uh, Mild infection is very common. I mean, if it's a bad primary herpes, you can tell, because as they're walking down the hall, they can't walk. They're sort of limping and their legs are apart. And both men and women, you can tell, okay, they have herpes. I know what you have. You don't have to come in the room. But if they, but a lot of times they just just come in and they have a little sore, they have a little, they have a history of a sore. And all that could be herpes as well. The systemic symptoms with primary herpes, you don't get it with recurrent. Usually some people will say every time I'm about to get a cold sore or a general herpes, I know it's coming because I get a fever and it chills. Most of the time they just, they feel the prodrome. Usually it's pretty painful. But I've had people that have no pain at all, just an itch, or they have a little discharge. And you know, again, people will come to see us at Bellflower, which is the clinic I work in, because of a they'll say it's a um, a discharge but when you look it's not a discharge it's a sore at the end of the penis or in the in the vulva giving the appearance of a discharge so it's actually herpes causing this so-called discharge so you can't get a discharge with herpes you have to be you have to be a, a uh, sort of aware of that as well usually the papules or blisters and the pustules and, and they become pustules and they coalesce they crusting and again they can sort of like simple they can really look like a lot of things couple pictures I have. You can see they're well-demarcated ulcers. These are the ones that, even if they don't look tender like that syphilis one did, these are very tender. Usually you can't get near these patients without them jumping off the table. And the only way to get a good culture, I don't use a Q-tip. I take a 15-blade and you scrape the base till you get good cells. And they don't like that. But if you don't get a good base, you're not going to get a good culture result. Again, you can see the... uh, well-demarcated ulcers sort of running around here and here. These are classic primary herpes ulcers. And again, this is primary. Recurrent wouldn't be this uh, diffuse. Recurrent would be usually just a few little bumps. This is a cervix. It's like on this side here. You can see right here is a nice ulcer on the top. Right here is a nice ulcer on the top of the cervix. So honestly, all the time I've done this, I think I've only had one person with herpes allow me to look at her cervix because they're so painful, you can't get a speculum in there. So. This is a good picture, though, but they would also have a discharge, and you can usually tell. Nearly all individuals with herpes develop recurrences. About four per year is probably average. Uh, They're usually milder and shorter, and they're usually not systemic on the recurrences. They usually look very similar to the outbreak, but they're more localized to the primary outbreak. And over time, you get less and less. Unfortunately, getting less and less outbreaks does not mean you're less and less infectious and that subclinical shedding is very common and that, you know, I have all these patients that say, whenever I have an outbreak, I wear a condom and I say, what about when you don't have an outbreak? Well, I don't need a condom then. And it's been shown in several studies with just random screening, people are shedding virus even when they're not symptomatic. You shed more when you are symptomatic, when you're not, you're still shedding. So people should not trust the fact that they don't have herpes sores to not try and protect themselves. The best treatment is clearly acyclovir, famcyclovir, or valacyclovir. Uh, it works. Uh, one of the lines I always use in my office is when I give people these pills, I say, the only way these pills can hurt you is if someone throws them at you and hits in the eye. Because they're really safe pills. It's, you can't overdose on them. You can't, they're very safe. They don't affect your system, just the virus. Uh, treatment does not eradicate the virus. Um, and is more effective when it's right at the prodrome. Like the cold sore dose for Valtrex, two grams the minute you feel the prodrome, two grams 12 hours later, it works very well. <coughs> this is another new recommendation. Now, 2006 was the last recommendation, so I'll have it again probably next year. Um, this is one of the very few times where the CDC specifically uses a brand name in their recommendations. Use Valtrex or consider using Valtrex for preventative for prevention of transmission of herpes in partners that are uh, discordant, one positive, one negative. It's just simply, the reason they use Valtrex is because that's the company Glaxo did the study. Glaxo spent the money. Glaxo did a great study. It's a worldwide study. And there's no question that if you use Valtrex prophylactically, even with unprotected sex, you will decrease transmission over 50%. It works fine probably for Fanbear and Zovirax, but no one's done the study. I offer all three to my patients, and if I can get Valtrex covered, I do first off, because it's less often. But now with Walmart paying you know, $4 for acyclovir, I usually do acyclovir. The dosing of these drugs changes every two years. It seems like they're complicated, and I just keep a little sheet with me if I can't remember it, but that's the basic. Um, the only thing that's really a little bit of a surprise is the fact that uh, Famvir is not approved for initial genital herpes. They just never did the study. Again, I'm sure it works. I use a higher dose if someone wants Famvir but I usually use Valtrex. Why are you here today? I used a sandwich bag for a condom and it gave me a sore. The sore turned out to be primary syphilis, so he's blaming the bag, not the syphilis. I told him that it wasn't probably the best use of a condom. The, the, the question is, did he use the bag the next day to carry his sandwich to work, and I don't know. I have a couple of slides of the more rare sexually transmitted diseases. These are the ones which are, um, I've seen like one case of chancred. I just, just to show you, just the summary. I know this is in your handout as well. These are just basically on a boards question. What are the highlights of these diseases? Uh, So granuloma inguinale, Klebsiella, granulomatosis. Used to be called camelobacter, changed to Klebsiella. Uh, Four clinical types. This is the one you don't see much lymphadenopathy. You see the pseudo pseudo-bubos. So they, it's more of a, just a growth in the area. Elephantiasis of genitalia, um, like in the Breakfast Club movie, remember he talks about that. Tissue crush prep, Donovan bodies, safety pins, that's one of the keywords he uses in a question. See, do you, you see safety pins on the crush prep, what diagnosis is it? It's granuloma inguinale. It's rare, 100, less than 100 cases in the U.S. per year. It's usually people that have traveled overseas. It still responds very well to antibiotics such as Bactrim or Doxy, and uh, you just don't see it very much. but. You can see it's it's a pretty gross ulcer, um, and usually that's one of the things. If someone just puts up a Codachrome picture on a board's question, and it's really a bad ulcer, I always think of granuloma inguinale, just because it's the one that has the most sort of uh, necrosis and irregular borders. And even though I don't see it very much, it's a pretty bad uh, pretty bad looking ulcer. Chancroid is a little more common than the other ones. Gram negative bacillus caused by Haemophilus ducre, uh... Painful ulcers, these really are painful. Uh, I've seen a couple of these patients that they go to Mexico for business or they come and they move back or they travel or they're Mexicans that have moved to Indiana with these sores. PCR is 100% sensitive. It's very difficult to culture. They still can't culture Haemophilus very well. So they do PCR and we have to actually call over to a special lab who comes over and does the chancroid testing. The, again, the, the keyword for the boards is the Gram stain schools of fish. Schools of fish is sort of what you see on a gram stain, that's the organism uh, that looks that way. Again, like, like um, standard chlamydia, it responds very well to Zithromax or the penicillin derivatives. This was the picture I showed you in the opening slide. It's, it's again, it can be an ugly ulcer, but usually they're more demarcated and they're not quite as, as sort of beefy as the, gran, as the uh, granuloma inguinale. LGV is another form of chlamydia. It's painless also. It's got lots of these really, these kind of words you don't want to hear. anogenital, genital, rectal syndrome, abscesses, fistulas, proctocolitis. And the buboes, of course. We've all heard, we all went to school where they talked about the buboes. This is the classic disease that causes the large buboes uh, or the lymph nodes in the inguinal area, which are much larger than other diseases. Everything I've shown you tonight can cause lymphadenopathy. Every one of these things causes lymphadenopathy. Herpes, somewhat notorious, will be fairly large. But syphilis can do it, and gonorrhea can do it, and chlamydia can do it. The problem is, over 70% of the people who are not infectious will have lymphadenopathy. If you just, you know, feel your own lymph nodes and your inguinal you're all going to have small bumps there, just over time. Once you get to be over 25 years old, everyone gets some inguinal lymphadenopathy. So it's not that great of a sign. But when you see buboes, it's a pretty good sign. Something's going on. Um, it still is pretty rare and responds pretty well to treatment. And these are the, the groove sign right there between the inguinal the ligament there. And the the bubo is sort of the big swelling all around there. And this is the ulcer. Again, not not a terribly sort of gross-looking ulcer, but an ulcer nonetheless. Um, What do we do in our clinic? What's the CDC recommend? How do we approach STD prevention? You have to access appropriate diagnosis and treatment. So you have to get these people to the right clinic. And we've done enough outreach to ERs and hospitals to know if you have someone that you think has a real STD, obviously if you're in the ER, they're going to treat them, but they also should get them to our clinic, especially if they think it's syphilis. Screen everybody, especially asymptomatic individuals in the high risk group. Treatment sexual partners. I have little cards I give everybody who has a disease. Give to your partner, give to your partner, give to your ten partners. They're just they're anonymous cards, everything goes by number. It says p 300 that tells me partner to gonorrhea. P four hundred tells me NGU. P two hundred tells me chlamydia. So the patients come in and said, My you know, my boyfriend gave me this. What do I do? I said, I'll take you know I'll take care of it. But you have to treat the partners, it's the best we can do. You can't eliminate it, but you can do that, you can do uh, you can find as many partners as you can. Education to reduce risk of infections, increase awareness of symptoms, encourage screening. I know, it goes back to the political controversy: do you teach this stuff to fifth graders and seventh graders and high school kids? Do you not teach it. I'm not here to make a political discourse. I can just tell you that most of these people actually know about it and still get it. And they all, you know, if you're talking about it. I mean, some of my people are, are such frequent flyers. They come in, they say, I have trick this time. I know what it is. Don't test me. Or I have gonorrhea. Or, I, they know because they've had it so many times. They know which feels like which. As long as it's not herpes, then they freak out. Um, Reduce risky behaviors. We do give condoms to everybody. We have uh, female condoms as well as male condoms that the state pays for. We, talk, we show them how to use it if they don't know how to use it. Um, we try to talk about risky behavior. We talk about monogamy. Again, people. Again, the people I see, most of them know about it. Uh, and unfortunately, we're seeing a lot more 14, 15-year-old girls who are having a lot of oral sex. You've probably heard about this. The, they take abstinence vows, and they won't have sex, but they don't consider oral sex sex. And they, increase, they actually increase the rate of oral sex because they're not having sex. Because so they feel like, I'm not going to have sex. I took this vow, I got my ring on. But oral sex, uh, hand sex, that's okay. And they still get STDs from those, obviously. Um, so we have to talk about that as well. Vaccination, the Gardasil vaccination—they're working on an HSV vaccination. This is the future. Hopefully, eventually, we're going to have a good vaccine for HPV and HSV that we can just give everybody in their childhood, and um, it should go right along with the DPT and all the other vaccines, um, so that as you get older, you're less likely to get these. Uh, and I think we can—you really can sell them to people not as an STD preventive, but as a cold sore preventive measure, as a cervical cancer preventative measure. And you have to do that because, as you know, a lot of parents don't want their children vaccinated for a potential STD because, for some reason, parents don't think they were ever teenagers. They forget what they were doing when they were 13, 15, and 18. Not an STD. That's my last slide.
0: question about circumcision. There are some studies from Africa indicating that circumcision uh, is preventing uh, HIV and presumably STDs also. Uh, Do you believe that study to be real? And that study has not been translated into U.S. studies. It's more anecdotal here. And do you think it is helpful to have a circumcision? I
1: do think the, the study you're referring to, the one I've seen from Africa, has not been confirmed. You're right. Uh, although there are pretty, pretty, there's pretty good evidence that circumcision reduces sexually transmitted diseases, both transmission and acquiring of it. Um, there's, less, there's clearly less penile cancer, and all the other sort of primary germinological balanitises, zoon's balanitis, um, lichen planus balanitis, are, are less common, generally, in men that are circumcised. Um, it's obviously, there's some political ramifications to tell people that it's healthier to be circumcised, but the, their HIV transmission is, is certainly felt by most HIV experts to be reduced because you don't have the foreskin which causes uh, the smegma and the buildup and increases mucosal contact. The more mucosal surface that's contacted, the more likely you are to transmit HIV. So there's, there's good pathophysiology and there's good, some good evidence that you increase HIV transmission by being uncircumcised. So that's, that's, uh, when patients, patients ask me that question about their children, I give them both sides of the evidence. I mean, I tell them th- that it's probably healthier, but, you know, in the long run, it may not make a difference. It's such a rare occurrence. Yes.
0: For uh, screening for syphilis, um, do you prefer RPR or VDRL, or is it They're both the same.
1: I prefer whichever the state is giving our clinic. So we normally have a RPR. We used to have a VDRL. Whichever we can get cheaper is what we work. at. And as long as they have a quantitative approach, as long as you can quantitate it well, 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 readily enough, we use either one.
0: Um, over the years, we've seen several women, um, we're in a suburban location, um, of various ages, usually middle-aged to even elderly, who develop um, herpes lesions in their sacral area. Mm-hmm. And I wondered what your, we have several theories on why we think that happens, but I wonder what you thought about that. And
1: Yeah, it's the old, did I get this from a toilet seat question. And, and I, I honestly believe that certain people can get it from a toilet seat. It's, it's always that, it's always women in their 70s who haven't had sex for 20 years, who come in with herpes right where they sit in the toilet. So my gut is that, and I haven't seen this written down, but I've talked to other people who do STDs, they're women who have older, uh, drier skin with little micro cracks in them, more susceptible to infections. They sit in a toilet, a public toilet, prefer hopefully, <laughs> that is you know, recently been sat on by someone else who had herpes, and they just pick it up that way. Because I've cultured HSV-1 and HSV-2 from older women's buttocks many times. That's what we always tell people to hover. It's the hover away.
0: Thank you. Are there a lot of adverse side effects with Gardasil? I don't have a lot of knowledge on the um, there's, um, there's vaccine. Really, and.
1: There's not really any any adverse side effects. And the shot's a little painful. You do get a little bit of swelling. There's been some recent internet buzz about risks of-
0: Guillain-Barre, paralysis, Guillain-Barre all that stuff.
1: There's also been uh, something recently someone was pointing out, um, an increased risk of cervical cancer they're saying women. That, they're saying my daughter never had sex, and now she has cervical cancer at the age of 22. The vaccine gave it to her. the The answer is no one knows it. it doesn't, physiologically, we know that vaccines generally don't cause the disease. It's a modified live vaccine, so it just doesn't. It doesn't there's no reason to think the vaccine would cause cancer. But you'll read about some of that on the internet.
0: Second part of the question is um, what's being done for development of males for HPV and Gardasil? They're what's... studying
1: it as well. They're actually not studying Gardasil as much. Merck is trying to do a more broad spectrum, a more valent. The Gardasil is a four-valent vaccine. They want to get one, which is you know, 18 to 22 valence. It covers as many as it can. We know from herd immunity, from the evolutionary branch of herd immunity, if you just vaccinate <laughs> one population, just women, eventually it's going to become resistant to that vaccine. That's called herd immunity. So it's got to be both men and women eventually. Um, but at this point, the FDA not, has not allowed it yet. If not, I guess they haven't approved it yet. Because the studies are out there for men. They just haven't, they haven't reviewed it yet. Thanks.
0: Uh, Good morning. That's uh, somewhat my question, too. To me, it makes more sense to vaccinate young men for HPV, and will insurance cover it, to your knowledge?
1: Uh, The the studies are not out there yet for men in HPV, so there's no way insurance will cover it. And I'm not recommending men get it yet because it hasn't been studied well enough to have the, the information. Okay, thank you.
0: Um, Given that Valtrex is so tremendously expensive, um, but it alone, I know in your handout you say that you use acyclovir for um, suppression therapy, um, but Valtrex has the FDA indication for suppressive therapy and the CDC um, approval, but can you use acyclovir
1: for suppression therapy? Yes, it is approved. It's approved at 400 BID long term, um, and I do that, but I, I still think Valtrex, I use Valtrex if insurance will cover it because it has better studies and it prevents prevention. A probably prevents prevention as well, but the bioavailability is so little compared to Valtrex that you know it's has got to be two or three times a day. And if you miss doses, you have a rapid drip, a rapid dip in the pharma, pharmacokinetics. So I generally I like Valtrex better, but I definitely will use uh, a again, especially because in our area, Walmart, Kroger, Kroger, mm-hmm. Target, Meyer will all do four-dollar programs for up to sixty pills.
0: Yeah, okay, thank you.
1: I have two parts. I have couples who um,
0: a single one of them is HSV positive, and they're trying to get pregnant.
1: So they've used a condom up till now so the other partner doesn't become infected, but now they're trying to get pregnant. Do you have any recommendations for, suggestions for them? That's a hard question. The, re- the real world, if they're monogamous and they're trying to get pregnant and they're mm-hmm. married, mm-hmm. the partner's probably already infected. You can do a blood test to prove it. If okay. the, and that just means they may be someone that's infected that just doesn't actually get the sores. Mm-hmm. Um, you can probably the per is it the is it the um, is it the male that's infected? I've had both. Okay, well, if mm-hmm. the male infected, I have no problem giving the male Valtrex to take prophylactically while they're trying to get pregnant. It will help. It'll definitely help prevent transmission. Uh, you know, the Valtrex and, and Famvir, they're still uh, they're not approved in pregnancy, obviously, and they're probably safe. And most OBs will use these drugs in pregnancy, but to tell somebody to go on it before you start trying to get pregnant to see whether you prevent transmission is hard uh, I wouldn't know the answer to that I would I would say it's probably safe but I, I'd rather first say you guys are monogamous the odds are pretty good you both have it by now Let's just see what happens uh, with time That was the and then the second part of my question is um, do you know the current recommendations are for women who are infected um, when they' are going to have do they have to, can they vaginally deliver? Yes, well if they have an outbreak, they're not gonna vaginally deliver. If there's an actual herpes outbreak clinically, they're not gonna deliver vaginally, they'll do a C-section. If, uh, on the other hand, if they're, if they're frequent outbreakers, the OBs will often give them Valtrex or Famvir to take the last trimester to prevent outbreaks, and that's fine. Then they'll do vaginal, vaginal deliveries. is fine. Then. Thank you.
0: Um, I had two questions. Um, how long do you leave patients on Valtrex suppressive therapy, especially if they're a discordant couple?
1: Um, I, I have no problem leaving on as long as they're having sex.
0: Okay. Okay.
1: So, and second, yeah.
0: And secondly, does herpes labialis protect at all against transmission? It
1: seems like it does. People that have HSV 1 are less likely to get HSV 2. Okay. It, it is definitely, that's been shown. And people, very few blood tests are positive for both. So to some extent, when people have, if someone comes to see me because of a big cold sore, I can almost reassure them a little bit, this is less likely, you're less likely to get genital herpes in the long run. It's, that's true.
0: But you still put them on suppressive therapy if they're a discordant couple.
1: Suppressive therapy, I offer to everybody, and I would say maybe only 30% actually want to go on suppressive therapy. Most people say episodic. You know, I break out every four months when I go in the sun or when I have a pneumonia. Then I break out, and so those people. But if someone wants it every day, then I'll give them every day. I offer everybody.
0: Thank you. Just I wanted to ask, what what do you uh, order for blood testing for uh, HSV-1 or two?
1: I order, the one I used to always order was Herpes Select, the the Herpes Select 1 and 2, which is a pretty good test. Some of the insurance companies aren't covering that test now, and I can just write herpes antibody, and whichever the lab uses, I find to be pretty good at this point. There's at least, what, four or five different companies now that make antibody testing for herpes type 1 and 2, and whichever the lab uses has usually been fine. Thank you very much.